You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. So we are in a series, Clint kicked it off last week on the story of salvation or a study through that. And uh, Thomas, am I light on? Are we set? It just seems a little darker. That's all right. There it is. Now I can see. Um, So Clint did a great job in kicking it off. But what we need to understand is that everyone here, no matter how old, how young, everyone is a theologian. Now, it's a simply word that means God, theo, in ology, the study of. And so everyone that has ever existed is really forming a view of who God is, even an atheist. They've simply come to the conclusion that there is no God. But everyone is forming this view of who God is and how we relate to Him and how He relates to us. Everyone is always doing that. But there's all kinds of factors that go into this. Thinking about how we build truth or how we decide what is truth. One of the things we'll talk about today is experiences. Everybody's got experiences, and that shapes how we view God and how we think He views us. Emotion is a big one. We're driven by emotion, and that plays a big part. Reason. We we try to balance, well, how can this be true and this be true? We're going to even talk about that today. And you've probably grown up in a tradition that taught certain things, and that shapes, right or wrong, that shapes how we view who God is. But there's always a trump card. My dad taught me how to play spades early on. I quickly learned there's one card that everybody wants that stands above every card, and that card is the ace of spades. And so Scripture is that for us. It is always the trump card. Scripture has to trump our traditions, our emotions, our reason, and our experiences. But we have to be careful in knowing how do we interpret it correctly, because no one ever comes at Scripture completely unbiased. Because of reason, experiences, and all these things, we are reading this a lot of times through a tainted lens, and so we have to be very careful. So we're studying this idea of salvation, and it's a word we often hear, we've used a lot, but as you really begin getting into it, you realize it is so much deeper and more meaningful than we ever realized. So I grew up, I've always kind of been a sports fan, love baseball, can tolerate a little basketball during the NCAA tournament, um, basketball, football especially. But there's a sport I've never gotten into, and I guess it's a sport, NASCAR. And I know some are NASCAR fans, fanatics, and you get them talking, and it's like another language. But what you soon realize is that they are seeing it very different than I do. To me, it soon puts me in a coma of cars going, chasing each other around a track to the hum of an engine. I just tend to fall asleep. But they get to talking about the pit crew doing this, they'll wear headphones and listen to all the stuff that's going on and all the drafting, and they see it very differently because they understand it. Well, I hope that's what's going to happen as we study through this idea of salvation, that we begin understanding it more and more. So I want to see if you were listening last week. Is salvation an event or a process? Which is it? I hear process. I heard some say it's an event. It's both. There is an event, and it's also a process. All right, a salvation, a past reality, a present truth, or a future reality? Which is it? 
It's all of well, good. You were listening. So Clint did a great job in presenting that. You guys did a great job in listening. So I want to begin by telling you this morning of a true story that happened in 1971. It's in Durham, North Carolina. They're going through that battle of integrating schools, and it's not going well. So this community gets together, and they form this committee that's going to meet for 10 very long days. One lady was put on this committee by the name of Ann Atwater, and another member was a member of the Ku Klux Klan, and his title, not making this up, was Grand Exalted Cyclops. Didn't know that was a thing, but that was his title. His name was Clairborne Ellis. Well, these two already had history. In fact, earlier, uh, Miss Atwater pulled a knife on Mr. Ellis. So Mr. Ellis shows up at the very first meeting with a machine gun strapped on his back. Well, they begin spending 12 hours a day together in these meetings. And the first breakthrough in the relationship happened when a gospel choir came to sing. And Mr. Ellis could not find the beat, you know, all white guy, could not find the beat at all. So Miss Atwater leaned over, probably to his surprise, grabbed his hands and helped him find the beat. And that began breaking the ice in their relationship. So then later in these meetings, Miss Atwater learned that Mr. Ellis actually joined the KKK because of what he was seeing and enduring the hardships in the world. Mr. Ellis soon learned that Miss Atwater uh, and many other black people were enduring the same fate. So eventually what happened, these two recognized their animosity between each other, and they began seeking after the same thing, realizing they were all seeking the same thing, but in many or very different ways. Well, after their time together, Mr. Ellis left the KKK, And the two began teaming up together over the following years to fight for social justice, not for just one group, but for all people. Then in 2005, Mr. Ellis dies, and Miss Atwater attended his funeral, and she actually sat with his family. Imagine the shock to that family and his friends of seeing this woman sitting with his family. She got up that to speak, and later on in the funeral, and she said by this time she had granted Mr. Ellis a much cooler title than Grand Exalted Cyclops. She liked to call him brother. And so today we're going to talk about a very important word in the story of salvation that's kind of depict in this story of the lives of Miss Atwater and Mr. Ellis, and it's the word atonement. I'm going to put some two symbols up here for you military people. See if you remember these. The atonement is the making of enemies into friends. And that's what the atonement does. The atonement is how does God take enemies and how does he make them friends? So it's this process by which God does to make enemies into friends is how does God take rebellious, sinful enemies and how does he reconcile them to himself and make them friends? So our key verse, if you want to turn, is going to be Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 explains in great detail and importance 
the idea of an atonement. Maybe it's a word you've heard before. Uh, maybe it's a new word, and that's going to be okay. So whether you uh, recognize it, whether you don't, hopefully we're going to come with a, leave with a much greater understanding of what this word means. So we'll pick up in verse 9, and this is how it reads. Since therefore we have been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by His death of His Son, much more now that we will be reconciled shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So the atonement is something that we have to know. We, we need to understand, and hopefully we walk away with a much greater understanding of what this word means. And so what I want to do, I want to lay kind of five foundational biblical truths that no matter how we look at this word, this is, these are always true. And then if you like some history, we'll get into that. So here's the first one. The atonement is absolutely necessary for our salvation. That the atonement is the only way that sinful people can ever be reconciled with a holy and righteous God. In fact, we, without this truth this morning, we're without hope and you are wasting your time and you just need to go live the life that you want to live, have as much fun as you want to have, and don't worry about anything else in the world. The second truth. Only Jesus is able to make an atoning sacrifice because He did not have to atone for Himself. In fact, Jesus is the only one that is uniquely designed and qualified to do this. You go back to the Old Testament sacrifices. What would a priest have to do before they could ever make an atoning sacrifice for the people, they had to go in and make atonement for their own. But a third one is that Jesus' atonement on our behalf, it is eternal, it is complete, and it's once and for all. Once again, in the Old Testament system, you had to bring a sacrifice each and every year for the atonement of your sins. Number four is the atonement was necessary because of one thing, because of sin. And that includes us. That is what makes the atonement absolutely necessary. But another thing that we need to realize, number five, is that the atonement is not anything that you and I are ever owed. We are not owed salvation in any shape, form, or way. That Christ died in accordance to God's sovereign, free, and gracious choice, that he in no way was ever compelled or obligated to create, to institute a plan of salvation. That we are not owed this at all. We could never earn it, and we're not owed it. In fact, God would have, I believe, according to Scripture, been entirely justified when Adam sinned, and that sin was then given to everyone else, and then we commit sins, that God would have been absolutely justified to condemn every single one of us to eternity in hell. But because God is gracious, because He is merciful, He created another way. But all these truths of the atonement are seen. In fact, you could flip all through the Scriptures, and you're going to see the idea of the atonement. 
But as the scriptures were being formed and, and kind of the canon of scripture is being put in place, the idea of atonement, people have been trying to answer one question. And that is, what did the atonement actually accomplish? That God makes enemies to friends. And in that, what does the atonement bring about? And so I want to look at some ways, some theories that were put in place over the last 2,000 years. So i got a little graph for us. So once Christ died on the cross, people began getting together, scripture was being formed, being written, the canon was put into place. These theories about what did the atonement accomplish were articulated. Well, the very first theory that we get is the theory called, um, how to explain it? So about 100 AD, the first ways to articulate was a guy named uh, Irenaeus. So Irenaeus studied under Polycarp. And Polycarp studied under the Apostle John. And it's called re recapitulation. And if you know me, I can't spell, so I'm just going to do the best I can. I think I actually got that one right. Recapitulation. This is what this theory says. Christ lived the perfect life that Adam could not live. That Christ reclaimed all stages of the human life, birth, infancy, childhood, adolescence, and manhood, and obeyed the law perfectly. Salvation made possible by the virtue of Christ's perfect life. So you can see, do you see what the focus of this theory is on? It's on Jesus living the perfect life here on earth. In fact, this is the first kind of uh, articulation of this is that Adam, the first Adam, represents all humanity, and he fails miserably. Thank goodness, because if it came to us, we would be the ones everybody would be blaming. But then Jesus comes as the second Adam to fulfill what the first Adam could not do. But in fact, here are some verses. You want to jot these down. This is where this theory comes from. It's in Romans. We were there in chapter 5. It picks up in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, talking of Adam, and death through sin, the consequence, so that death spread to all men because all sin, that we are all represented in Adam. Verse 17, for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through one man named Jesus Christ. So he comes as the second Adam to represent what the first Adam could not. Then in verse 19, For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, that we have inherited sin, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Remember back in the beginning, we all have these things that we're using to decide and build upon truth. We have experiences, we have reason, we have emotion, we have tradition, and now we have scripture. Well, Gnosticism was running in the first century. Gnosticism was this view that said all matter is bad. The only thing that really matters is the spiritual, and that's what we need to be focusing on. The physical life, it's gross, it's corrupt. It's got all these things wrong with it. We just really need to focus on the spiritual side of things. And then if that is true, 
the conclusion was that Jesus really could not become a man because he would then be corrupted by the material that he then possessed. So Arrhenius is what he's doing. He's speaking. He's kind of pushing back against that truth. Because remember, he follows Polycarp. Polycarp followed John. John could tell you, listen, I'm telling you, he was all real. I smelt him. You know, I touched him. I heard him. He was a real man. So Arrhenius is pushing back against that idea that Jesus could not become a real man. But here's the weakness in this theory. If Christ simply came to reclaim uh, the life of man by perfect obedience, then the cross really becomes irrelevant. Because Jesus could have lived and died an old man of old age, making atonement that way. So this theory does fall short in that. So about 100 years later, a new theory comes on the scene by a guy's name, Origen, Gregory of Nicaea, even Augustine of Hippo. Around 200 AD, and you may recognize this one, it's the ransom theory. This is a theory that, uh, this is what it says. John 8, 44, one of the, the key passages. For you are your father, the de- you are your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's will. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And then you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20. For you are bought with a price. You see the idea of ransom. So glorify God in your body. In Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. So this ransom theory, what it's doing, it sees people as being in Satan's possession and that God had to ransom people back from Satan so that they could be released. In fact, you still see this theory being taught today. I remember one time listening, remember Paul Harvey? He was a man that never like fumbled over one word. Um, he was an incredible storyteller. So one day he's telling this story of a pastor named uh, George Thomas up in New England. And one day he's walking uh, to church and he comes in carrying this kind of rusted, beat up old birdcage. And he sits it next to his podium and he begins telling the story that happened that week where he's walking down the road and he sees this little boy carrying this birdcage with some birds in it. Stops him and says, son, what are you doing there? And he said, well, I just had me some old birds. And he asked him, what are you going to do with them? He said, well, I'm going to take these birds. I'm going to have so much fun with them. I'm going to pluck their feathers out. I'm going to tease them. I'm going to make them fight. I'm just going to have so much fun with them. And Pastor Thomas then looked at the boy and said, well, when you get tired of those birds, then what are you going to do? He said, oh, I have a cat. And I'm going to feed these birds to my cat. The pastor looked at the boy and he said, well, how much do you want for those? Little boy's puzzled, and he looked at the pastor, and he says, but why would you want these birds? They're, they're not worth anything. They're just plain old field birds, and they don't sing. They're not pretty. He said, how much? Boy looked at the pastor, kind of sized him up, and he said, $10. Pastor reached into his 
wallet, pulled out a $10 bill and handed it to the boy. And that boy was gone in a flash, probably to go find more birds to try to sell to the pastor. Pastor then takes that birdcage to the end of town and finds a field with some trees. And he opens that little door and he lets the birds go. He then turns to the congregation and begins telling them another story. He says, one day Satan and Jesus were having a conversation and Satan had just come from the Garden of Eden and was gloating and boasting, saying, yes, sir, I just caught a world full of people down there, set me a trap, used a bait they could not resist, and I got them all. Jesus said, what are you going to do with them? He said, oh, I'm going to have so much fun with them. He said, I'm going to teach them to marry and divorce, how to hate, abuse others. I'm going to invent ways for them to kill each other. I'm going to give them things that they think they're going to love and bring them happiness that will make their lives miserable. I'm going to have so much fun. Jesus then asked him, what are you going to do with them when you get tired of them? He says, well, I'm going to kill them, of course. Jesus then looked at Satan and said, how much for them? Satan then looks back at Jesus, sizes him up, and says, you don't want these people. He said, they're not good for anything. If you take them, they're going to hate you. They're going to spit on you, curse you, and kill you. You don't want them. He says, how much? Thinks for a minute. Satan says, your life. Jesus then paid the price. Pastor then picks up the birdcage and he walks out. So it's kind of a touching and a powerful story. But this theory also falls short. So one of the things that it does is it makes God obligated to Satan and shows kind of God and Satan being on equals as who is more powerful. Another thing it does, it it requires God to kind of be deceptive. It requires God to kind of deceive Satan and kind of pull a fast one on him. Another thing it does is I think it gives Satan too much power in salvation. Because think about what would have happened if Satan had said, nah, I'm just going to keep them. Another thing it does is that it minimizes the role or the need of forgiveness by focusing on this idea of rescue. So the Bible does teach this, but it's a theory that also has many weaknesses. As the Bible does teach that um, we are in times under the control that Satan is there. But Scripture teaches that God is the one that is offended, and God is the one that needs to be satisfied, not Satan. In fact, this view is very common for almost a thousand years. It was often taught, even today. But then in 1100 AD, Anselm was a man that came up with a new theory. It's often looked at as the Roman Catholic view, and it's called the theory of satisfaction. This is what this theory says. It says this, that man's sinfulness has wounded God's honor. So the good news is God is now really the focus here. Out of necessity, and that's going to be important, restored his honor by sending Jesus, both God and man. So here we have the hypostatic union, Jesus being God and man, so that's good, who restored his honor and gained a reward that he did not need since he had everything. This reward is offered to man, and here's where it gets cloudy, in the form of merit and grace. So is there any scripture? There actually is, Isaiah 59, 2. It says, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, 
and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear you. So it's the idea that we've offended God and God is like this king that's had his honor offended. So he then is ignoring the people and satisfaction needs to be made. First John chapter 2, verse 1. He says, My little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. It's, it's the word lawyer that we have. Uh, someone to do something on our behalf. With the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So there are some strengths to this theory, actually. One is that it places the focus on God and not on Satan. Another one is that God is the one that has to be satisfied, not Satan. I think this view, it takes sin seriously. It talks about our offending of him. I think it explains that Jesus, he had to be fully God, and at the same time, he had to be fully man. But there are also some weaknesses. One, it makes God obligated. Um, Once we sin, God is then kind of bound to act because his honor's been offended, and he's obligated to do. I think it focuses also on God's honor, but it never talks about God's holiness and His righteousness. So then in 1100 AD, a French philosopher and theologian named Peter Abeland wrote a theory, and you need to be aware of this theory because it is still being taught today. And it's the theory of the moral example And it's going to have some things that are intriguing that sound correct, but this is a very, very dangerous theory because here's how this theory goes. That Christ came to show people how to live so that they would turn to Him in love. And so far, man, that sounds great. But then it goes on to say this. His death was not required and it has no atoning value. It serves only as a moral example for people to follow. And it's a belief that says this, that the only thing that matters is love. The message is, God loves you. We need to live and let live. Let people be who they're going to be. Don't worry, just love people, and it will all work out in the end. Go and be the best you can be. Live life to the fullest. And it says God doesn't need to be satisfied. That God isn't angry with you. God loves you. And the problem is, this theory, it is looking at God being love and looking at God's wrath, and they cannot justify the two being together. And that's one of the reasons why we looked at some of the attributes, and we said from the beginning, none of God's attributes are ever in conflict to one another. He never has to sacrifice or give up one to be another. But when people hear God is jealous, and God is wrathful, and God is angry, they can't reconcile that with a God being a God of love. And this is one of the most accepted and the fastest growing theories of the atonement. And then about 30 years ago, this view uh, kind of got some new energy with what we have termed the emerging church. It looked at the atonement and it finds it hard to reconcile this idea of God being love and God and being wrath and having to put his son on the cross. In fact, proponents of the emerging church even went as far as to say that the atonement of Jesus dying on the cross was actually cosmic child abuse. And it's a view that completely downplays the cross because it sees the cross 
as too offensive. And they want to make something that's a lot easier for people to accept and to swallow. In fact, if you know anyone that's a universalist, this is where this comes from. It says, God loves, God has to love everybody. And if God loves everybody, then in the end, God is going to save everyone because God is love. And that's all that really matters. Well, it was hard, but I found some strengths. One of them is the life and death of Jesus. It should be a motivating factor for our lives. And this theory promotes that. It, it also focuses a lot on being uh, Jesus being an example uh, to love others. And that is something that we should absolutely be about. But there are many, many weaknesses. For one, it completely undermines the seriousness of sin. Another one, it elevates God's love at the expense of His wrath and His righteousness. It completely disregards the necessity of any kind of sacrifice. In fact, it makes Jesus' death of absolutely no value, just this thing that happened. But it makes God guilty of the worst kind of child abuse ever, if there is no atoning value in it. Well, thank goodness, a new theory kind of birthed on the scene, and you really see it happening around 1600, and it's the vicarious substitution theory. Almost ran out of room. This is what it says. The atonement is made on the cross. So finally, we have the cross being central to this. When Christ vicariously or victoriously bore the exact penalty of His people thereby satisfying the wrath of God and His righteousness. But what we need to know is this is not a new theory. It's not only 400 years old. But when the Protestant Reformation happened, it's what we saw was a resurgence of people actually reading and studying God's Word again for themselves. Because out of the satisfaction theory came, they were so worried and it was the, the priests that controlled this. You couldn't trust lay people to understand God's Word and we had to be their keepers. And so we studied and we told them what it meant. But when people finally began getting into God's Word and, and copies being produced that people could actually hold in their hands, you see people finally being able to articulate and to discuss and to read about the idea of a vicarious substitutionary atoning death of Jesus. This theory says this, that Christ took the place of sinners, but did not just be the first Adam. He was also the second Adam, but he had to endure the wrath of God. It also says that Christ must be our substitute, and it's that great exchange that Christ lived the life that we could never live and then he turns around and dies the death that we deserved. That he becomes our substitute. And man, there are some powerful texts. Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. In verses 4 and 5. Surely he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him, he was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. 2 Corinthians 5 21. 
for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And then once again, Romans 5 that we read earlier. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice that in God, through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation, that we have been made friends. So which of these theories is actually correct? And hopefully we would say the last one. But you know, they actually all have some truth. The recapitulation. That Christ undid Adam's sin through his obedience to the law. That's a truth to hold on to. The ransom theory, we could take that Satan was defeated. The satisfaction theory, that God's honor actually was satisfied. The moral example, that Christ is an example to follow. But if the atonement is not a vicarious substitution in our place, then we, there's absolutely no hope at all. That has to be the truth. That has to be what the atonement accomplished. And so to take this, then what does this mean for us today? You know, every person in this room and every person you will ever meet, the woman checking you out at the grocery store, the neighbor, the parents you interact with at the ball field, there's only one of two people. They're either an enemy of God or they're a friend of God. And the most important message that we could ever hear and ever tell is the only way to be reconciled to God is through Jesus' substitutionary atoning sacrifice and absolutely nothing else, that He took our place. So the question is, are you a friend of God? And looking out, I know many of you, and you, I think all of us would probably say absolutely. But here's a harder question. Are you a friend of God, but living as an enemy? You know, I've been a Christian most of my life, a believer. But I've lived over half my life. I was wrong about how God sees me and how he feels about me and even how I saw God. Man, I was using my experience, my emotion, my reason, all of the, my tradition. All of these things were shaping how I thought God viewed me and how I viewed him. And even though I was a friend of God, what I realized is that I was living as if though he was an enemy of mine. In fact, this is how it kind of went. Man, if I had a quiet time, if I tithed, I was memorizing scripture, I was nice to my brother and sister, respectful to my parents, then what that created was that God was happy with me. But then when there would be these weeks where I didn't spend time in God's word, all the money I had was mine. I didn't see it from God's. I was mean to my brother or sister, disrespectful. Or there was some sin I was giving into or caught up in. And I could not understand how God could love me. I could not understand how God could accept me. And all I knew to do was that I just had to try harder. And I lived in this kind of never-ending cycle of disappointment and shame. It wasn't until I began to kind of understand and someone began unpacking 
the atonement for me, that things begin to change. And I remember the moment that I finally come to believe this, that God could not accept me or love me any more than He does right now. Not because of any merit, not because of anything in me. It's only because He could not accept Jesus or love Him more than He does right now. And I remember the moment it clicked for me. I was absolutely in seminary. I was sitting in a class on prayer. And the professor asked us, why should God listen or even hear your prayer? And man, my hand went up. I had done my reading. I had the answer. And I said, he shouldn't. And I thought, man, what a perfect answer. It's humble. I knew I had it right. Well, then he looked at me and he said, if God ever asked you why he should hear your prayer, this is what you say. You say, Lord, the reason you should hear or listen to my prayer is that I just concluded a 40-day fast. And during that time, I met Satan in the flesh. I stared him down, and I resisted all his temptations. And then I suffered unjustly at the hand of sinners, but did not, without complaint or even the slightest bit of selfish anger, I only opened my mouth to forgive those that were doing that to me. I also walked on water. I healed a blind man. I fed 5,000 hungry men with a loaf of bread. And I remember thinking, hold on, prof. Man, you're talking about Jesus. And then he says, I know exactly what you're thinking. But according to the gospel, that is exactly what you can and you should say, because Jesus' death has paid for every ounce of your sin. His perfect life has been credited to you. And in light of that, do you really feel that you could make God love and accept you by doing more? And I remember feeling the weight lifted. And so the atonement proves that God cannot love you any more than He does right now because God cannot love and accept Jesus Christ any more than He does. And He sees you and He sees I in Jesus. I mean, this should impact everything about us. It should impact how we see ourselves, how we see God, and even how we see other people. And so I want to pray this morning. I hope God will take this truth and hide it into our hearts and change the way that we see things. And next week, we're going to be taking this idea of the atonement, and then how does God begin applying that to us when we'll talk about calling? Let's pray. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.